A few years ago, my aunt gave me a gift for Christmas. It was my family history bound into a book. She'd spent a great deal of time researching my family history on my father's side. She found some pretty interesting stuff, I have to admit. Among that, that she had found was that on my father's side, I was a direct descendant of James McGuire. James was one of 31 men who had accompanied Daniel Boone and had blazed a trail across the Cumberland Gap and had settled in an area in Kentucky that would become Fort Boonesboro. Pretty cool. He was, in the 1700s, a rugged frontiersman. I got pretty interested in what she was telling me, and so I pressed her for more stories. And I learned a valid truth, (laughs) that if you shake your family tree Hard enough, some nuts are going to fall out. (laughs) There were stories she really didn't want to tell me, but she eventually did. Things like, we had, uh, that's her calling to tell me I shouldn't tell the story. (laughs) She told me that we had family, relatives, descendants in Virginia who were among those who hid conspirators to Lincoln's assassination. That if you look far enough back in our history, you would discover that uh, the original immigrants to America in our family were not, as she had hoped to discover, archers in the Queen's Army, the last name Bowman. That wasn't the story. They were actually horse thieves who were escaping to America to escape execution. That didn't make for quite the family crest she was hoping for. My family story is neither perfect nor pretty. Now, in my family's history, you look through it, you'll find good people. You'll find hardworking people, people of faith and good character. There are good people in there. But even in my immediate family, you'll find tragic and sad stories. You'll find stories of alcoholism, broken people, stories of abuse. My family tree is full of knots, just like yours. The Christmas narrative. In fact, Matthew's entire gospel opens with Jesus, family tree. I'll be honest with you. For years, when I opened Matthew's Gospel and I would see that genealogy, I would skim it or just skip it entirely. I'd wonder really, what's the point? Why bother to read it? Later on, now, I realize it's beauty. The list hasn't been picked over. It hasn't been scrubbed. It hasn't been sanitized for us. Jesus' family tree contains knots just like mine. Sprinkled in among the good and wonderful people, there were murderers, there were wicked kings, there were prostitutes, there were religious outcasts. All of them were left in Jesus' family tree. 
Within that scandalous cast of characters, Matthew helps us capture just how fully human Jesus was becoming on that night in Bethlehem. When we really understand Jesus' family history, we begin to suspect that those words, Emmanuel, God is with us have a far deeper meaning than we might have ever imagined. Well, good morning, everybody. We are starting a new series this morning called Scandalous, and we're going to take a look at some aspects of the Christmas story over the next four weeks that you might have never heard talked about in church before, and hopefully uh, it will encourage you and challenge you in this Christmas season. As we start this four-week series, I am not at 100%. You might hear that in my voice today. Um, so, uh, I am contagious. And it, if I didn't greet you on your way in, and if I don't greet you on your way out, it's because I like you. In a break with tradition here at Westridge. So, um, with a little bit of attention from you and some of God's grace, we'll make it through this this morning. My voice has lost 50% of what it had from first service. So, Um, This is just hot water. Confession, okay? My grandmother, who never drank, had her own concoction for dealing with what I have. It was one-third. It was a third honey, a third lemon juice, and a third whiskey. She was was so cute with that, and she had no dosage. She just took a swig, and she said, it helps me. (laughs) I said, I'll bet it does, Granny, I'll bet it does. But trust me, this is just hot water, so I'll take a sip every now and then, and we'll get through this together. Deal? All right. Uh, Matthew opens his gospel with these words. This is the genealogy, or some translations say this is the beginnings of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. I'll stop there. I'm not going to read the next 11 verses of the entire genealogy to you, even though I heard a gasp of excitement from all of you as I started. You're thrilled by genealogies, aren't you? Yeah. No, you're not. Don't lie to me. You're in church. None of us are really excited by genealogies being read to us, are we? Really? Anybody excited by having a genealogy read to you? No. But Matthew didn't write this for us. We're not the target audience. Matthew was writing to first century Jewish people, and this beginning of his gospel would have excited them for two important reasons reasons. First, it would have tied Jesus directly to King David's bloodline. And that was important because all of the Old Testament prophecies said the Messiah would come from the house, from the bloodline of King David. Matthew established that. Second, every one of these names told a story. The listeners knew every aspect of those stories. They had been taught those stories from their childhood. 
inside and out. So the name triggered a story. Some of the stories were noble, some were ignoble. Some were righteous, some were evil. Some of the stories carried a legacy of faith, some a legacy of dysfunction. And this genealogy is a mixed bag, to say the least. But what would have really snapped their heads around as they listened to this genealogy being read to them was Matthew's break with tradition. Matthew mentions women, five of them, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and lastly, Mary, the mother of Jesus. No Jewish genealogy would have mentioned women. So why would Matthew make this countercultural choice, especially when this list of five women included two prostitutes? It included women who weren't of Jewish faith or bloodline. It included women who had very questionable moral character. Why would Matthew pull in scandals of a historic proportion into this genealogy? If the Christmas story is about anything, it is about hope coming to broken and defeated people. Now, we don't like to think about ourselves as being broken and defeated. But Matthew includes these women in his genealogy to help us understand just how much we have in common as a people and with them and how much we really need Jesus to come and save us. Of the women women Matthew mentions... Clearly, the most broken, the most defeated was Tamar, whose story is told in Genesis chapter 38. If you're a little sleepy this morning, this story is going to wake you up. It is edgy, so just be warned. Begins in verse 6 of Genesis 38. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to his son Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring with your brother. Heads up, that's not the edgy part. It's just normal Jewish custom. It's weird, but it's normal Jewish custom. I Just as a side thought to me as I read this, I went, that would definitely make me pay attention to who my older brother married. It was absolutely normal in that culture. If your older brother died before he had children, it was your responsibility to produce offspring for him so that they then could take possession of his land and his property. It was normal, and it was a weird normal. Let's go on. Onan knew that the child would not be his, so when he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. So Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brother. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. Let's check the room. How's the awkward meter now? 
Things I never thought I'd hear in church. So Judah is just simply admitting his sons are wicked at this point. God's killed two of them. His youngest son now, he's not willing to risk, so he sends Tamar away. He's sending her back to her father's home. In that culture, that is sending her back, basically saying she's going to be a servant in her father's house. He is basically ending her function and her usefulness to society. This is a real story. There's no sugarcoating. I looked at all the translations, believe me, to find something else to read to you this morning. This is as good as it gets. Imagine Tamar, an ordinary Jewish girl. She's grown up hoping someday to have a family, raise kids, have a husband. Through no fault of her own, her life has become a nightmare. Her storyline has become so sordid, so scandalous, we don't want to read about it. We don't want to talk about it. Just me reading the passages made some of you very uncomfortable. This is the kind of stuff that we work to cover up in our lives. The kind of stuff that we work hard to forget if it happens to us. It's the last thing we'd ever want to bring up, but Matthew highlights it in Jesus' genealogy. Let's skip down a couple of verses and read on. Judah's wife, Tamar's father-in-law, his wife has died. And later on, Tamar is told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah, a town, to shear sheep. So Tamar takes off her widow's clothes, ends her grieving, covers herself with a veil to disguise herself, and she sits down at the entrance to Enaim, a town, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. What will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord, which basically was his signature. It was a a stamp that was unique to him. No one else would have one like it. So give me that and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and he slept with her and she became pregnant. After that, she left, she took off her veil, and put on her widow's clothes again. She's no longer an innocent victim in her story. She's made choices. She got pregnant, later on the passage tells us, she has twins. Twin sons, Zara and Perez. Perez has more sons. And from his descendants, Jesus is a direct descendant. Think about those two boys. Think about them growing up. There's no sappy, sweet story to tell when somebody says to Perez, how'd your parents meet? 
Think about the stigma they're going to carry through their life. Think about the identity issues they're going to have to deal with. Think about them explaining to their friends that their grandfather is their father. You thought your family was messed up. This is about as messed up as families get. Judah, later on, decides he's going to have to pay this prostitute to get his property back. So he sends a young goat with a servant, but the servant can't find the prostitute. So rather than set about this massive search to find a prostitute, Judah decides to just let it go or he'll become a laughingstock of the community. About three months later, Judah's told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. As a result, she's now pregnant. So he invokes the full force of Old Testament law and says, bring her out and have her burned to death. It's really easy to find ourselves in Judah's actions. We get somebody who wrongs us. We want them to get the maximum penalty, feel the pain that they've caused us. But when we wrong somebody, we want grace, don't we? Self-righteousness can easily creep into our heart, our character, our actions. That's what's happened to Judah here. As Tamar was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I'm pregnant by the guy who owns these. See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized him and said, Tamar is more righteous than I am, since I wouldn't give her my son, Sheila. And he didn't sleep with her again. This is without a doubt the most messed up story in the Bible. I can't find one that's more messy. I don't want to look for one that's more messed up than this, to be honest with you. And it's part of Jesus' story. It's part of his family history. Matthew includes it in the Christmas narrative, I think, to show us that God is bigger than our mistakes. When we look at Tamar's story, there are mistakes everywhere. By her two husbands, by her father-in-law, and mistakes by Tamar. There are enough mistakes to go around in this family. But God's plan for Tamar's life and her family are bigger than those mistakes. God is able to use broken and defeated people to do amazing things. We don't get to track Tamar's life extensively in Scripture. She kind of fades from view after this story. But we see traces of her influence. God began to bless her family, her two sons. They became good people, leading two of the largest clans in Israel. And when the Israelites moved into the Promised Land, her two sons were given two of the largest tracts of land for their families to settle in. Perez, in fact, was given a very choice piece of land, inside of which was built the city of Bethlehem. 
Seems like a famous individual was born in Bethlehem. We celebrate his birth this time of year. From Perez was born a son who had a son who had a son who had a son whose name was Jacob, who had a son named Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, to whom was born Jesus. It is so helpful to read this genealogy and have this 42-generation perspective on Tamar's life. To zoom out and get the big picture. Tamar's story is evidence that God doesn't define our lives by our mistakes. God doesn't give up on us when we struggle. Tamar's story tells us that God's plan is bigger than anything that's in our past or our present. God can do amazing stuff through you and through me. Who do you have in your life that helps you keep that perspective? When you're feeling broken and defeated and you just want to zero in on the mess you're making of your life right now. I've been following Jesus for more than 40 years. And I still need encouragement when I'm in times like that. That's why I'm a part of a group of six guys, a small group. We're just doing life together. We meet officially every two weeks, but we're together more than that. These guys help me see God at work in my life. They help me through the tough times. They get me through stuff that I can't get through on my own. They help me get things in the right perspective. And they're more than a group of friends. They are helping me, and together we're helping each other, seek God's best in our lives. If you don't have a group of people like that in your life, we can help you find that in a community group. Let me just say one more thing about those kinds of people in your life. If you're not in a community group, if you're not ready for that, We're in a season of the year that causes stuff to bubble up. It's a great season with Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's, and a lot of us just love this season. But for a lot of people, this is a tough time of year. It raises issues about God, about family. Stuff just bubbles up. And if you need somebody to talk to, we have a group of people that have been trained and are compassionate, caring people called Stephen Ministers. Stephen, people have asked why Stephen ministers, why we call it that. Stephen was a guy in the first church who gave his life to caring for people, loving people. That's why we call them Stephen ministers, because they're using their gifts to care for and love people who are having a tough time, working through some stuff. And if you'd like somebody to talk to and you're not in a community group, you need somebody now, or you're in a community group and you need somebody that can help you a little beyond that, we can help you connect to a Stephen minister. Because it's a big step to go from just understanding that God is bigger than my mistakes to being able to live out that truth. To be able to do that requires a shift in our focus. For us to begin to live with a new perspective on life, We'll start to do that when we realize our life isn't about what happened in our past. It's about what we choose next.
What happened in our past, in our life, in our family? It is a part of our story. It's shaped us into who we are today. But every one of us in this room is more than a sum of our family history, our past mistakes, and our past successes. We are more than that. Through God's power and through His grace, we can make choices that will change our future. Tamar and the other women listed in Matthew 1 are tremendous examples of this. Every single one of those women, with the exception of Mary, had a sketchy past. But they reached a moment in their life where they made choices that changed their story arc. Even the Apostle Paul in the New Testament had that same thing in his life. Paul had to work to maintain this forward focus, focusing on his next choices rather than his past. He talks about it with a deep passion and conviction in his life. Paul had a lot of junk in his past, including execution of innocent Christians. That's a dark and sordid past to have to leave behind as you focus forward. Listen to what Paul says about that. He says, don't think about me as having already obtained this, this perfection in Christ, this maturity in Christ. Don't think I've already arrived at my goal. But this one thing I do, forgetting everything that's behind me and straining towards what's ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Every single one of us has stuff in our past that we want to forget. We all do. We hope that nobody digs it up. Nobody finds it. We like to bury it forever. Let me just forget it. The Bible assures us that all that stuff, if we are in Christ, God has dealt with it. It's gone. In Christ, we are forgiven. God's got your past covered. Focus Forward, Paul says, strain towards what's ahead with every muscle, every fiber in your being. Put on your new nature. Be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become more like Him. We don't change. We don't grow by fixating on our mistakes. We grow to be like Jesus by focusing on our future, working every day to put on that nature, learning to know Jesus and becoming like Him. It's how we change our story arc. One day, one choice at a time. Harper Lee's novel, To Kill a Mockingbird, is an American classic written in 1960. It tells the story of Atticus Finch who lives in a small Alabama town where people are who they are and they never really change, not even from one generation to the next. The attitudes, the character shadings, even the gestures that people make are repeated generation to to generation, and they're just simply refined over time. And so what you end up with in that small Alabama town is guides for daily life. You end up with sayings, altruisms, like, 
No Crawford minds his own business. Every third Meriwether is morbid. And the truth is not in the Delafields. Atticus Finch understands those truths about his town and about people. And it leads him to one more truth that he espouses. When he says, you can choose your friends, but you sure can't choose your family. You know, I disagree. He was wrong. We do get to choose our family. We just have to let go of the notion that our family has to have the same genetic coding. We'll let go of the idea that the only people are family are those who sat across the dinner table from us as children or those who surrounded us at family reunions. We can choose to be a part of the family that Matthew describes in his genuine and unlikely genealogy. Because the Bible assures us that when we come to faith in Christ, we are all children of God. We're a part of his family. We have a choice. Now, you have to understand, when you choose to join that family, it's a messed up family. It's got some of the same messes in it as your genetic family. It's scandalous. It's full of people who know what it's like to be broken and defeated. But it's a family that it's worth joining. It's worth making that choice because it's a family full of hope. It's a family where our stories and our mistakes can be redeemed. It's a family where together we are beginning to understand the depth of God's love expressed in that simple phrase, God is with us.